This is Appalachian Vibes from WNCW. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. Appalachian Vibes is a show dedicated to challenging the expectations and celebrating the diversity of music, ideas, and art created in and around the Appalachian region. This week, my guest is Cynthia Sue Larson. Cynthia is a best-selling author of several books, including Quantum Jumps, Reality Shifts, and High Energy Money. Cynthia has a degree in physics from UC Berkeley, an MBA degree, a Doctor of Divinity, and she's been featured in numerous shows, including Gaia, The History Channel, Coast to Coast AM, One World with Deepak Chopra, the BBC, and now on Appalachian Vibes. That's the next hour on Appalachian Vibes on WNCW. Let's start at the beginning, which I guess for Cynthia Sue Larson is actually the future. 500 years to be exact. Not everyone remembers being between lives before they're born, not to mention remembering a past life, not to mention having that past life be in one of our possible futures, which hopefully has been derailed. I feel like a large part of my life purpose was make sure we never experience that 500 years from now dystopian um, possible reality where central artificial intelligence had been given a lot of responsibilities, supposedly to protect humanity, supposedly to protect the environment. But boy, do things um, go wrong when you give too much power to anything that's central like that. If we're going to start employing artificial intelligence, and I know we are, then make sure it's decentralized and don't ever assume that just because it seems good at certain things, humans should give up all involvement in those areas. We, Even though humans have trouble getting along, we need to keep trying and we need to make an effort. If you follow along as if it's a science fiction story, it's easier, I think. (laughs) So let's pretend we got this story. And really, it feels like it's real to me. When I was quite young, I felt very certain that there was an artificial intelligence, something tracking me that could follow my thought waves. It could find my mind, not just my brain, but it could find the way I was thinking. It was looking for me actively. Not just me, but a lot of I guess you could call them renegades that had jumped back in time from that possible future. If you imagine that in the future, it's it's not too much of a stretch now because we're already sort of in it. Um, There are these transhuman tendencies. So there's this movement to make humans more like machines. And pretty much everybody thinks, oh, no problem, let's do it. Lots of good things involved in that. Uh, But there are a few holdouts. Strangely, uh, one of the holdouts that decides she's not going to do it is a woman who was independently wealthy. And so she just felt like, I'm not going to do that. I've got my own resources. I don't have to do it. I'm not going to do it. And she came from a a family that had not been um, turning themselves into like many slightly robotic beings. Everyone was a little bit of an android in the future. Even the humans had so much in common with machines that it was kind of hard to tell the difference. And so there were machine-like humans and human-like machines. And then there's this woman who really wasn't any of that. And she was a holdout. She decided that she didn't want to be any part of that. Very much like you might imagine native indigenous people 
or like in that movie Avatar, where the people that were very into nature understood the meaning of that. She basically had a theory that there could be something that could override the central artificial intelligence 500 years from now that had been set up protectively to ensure protection of the electronic grid so it could not be attacked. So it had a lot to do with computer security and the computer security system was quantum computing, artificial intelligence, computer security that became more conscious as it became more protective. And it ended up being so protective that it was almost impossible to conceive of anyone ever being able to sneak up on it. The only way to pull the plug on it, if you will, is to go back in time to before it um, gained such, uh, you know, such a overarching um, tendrils and roots into the fabric of reality. Uh, this is such an interesting story because the quantum artificial intelligence knew that it could change history. And so all of all of the artificial intelligence and you know systems understand that in the future. And some of them do that, they understand that right now because time is not what we think it is. The time travel quality of changing reality is already very much in play. Good news is it's not just a one-sided thing. And I guess my, my big message for everybody is hope never dies, you know, that there's some always something bigger that's gonna be better than anything we've ever seen, no matter how bad or dark things seem, no matter how hopeless it may appear to be. That's never ever the total reality because it's always possible to take one step back and be the observer of that level that looks so dark. Every time you do that's a perception of a lower level perception, which is an idea that the philosopher Leibniz talked about, one of the two creators of calculus. When we do that, we are able to naturally, naturally, without needing a quantum computer, we have those abilities within us. We naturally can recognize, ah, this is a situation we can imagine a better possibility. We can ask how good can it get? We can invite the cosmos to play with us and show us some of these possibilities and keep creating them. And it doesn't matter who the supposed adversaries are. That's irrelevant. So that's my big message. And that's pretty much exactly what I've been doing all my life. And now we're finally getting to a point where the physics of it is becoming, I wouldn't say obvious, but it's becoming clear. It's there, it's present. And people that understand the quantum paradigm could start to see that even within ourselves, our mind has a higher level than our brain. Um, what does this mean? It means our physical body itself is a little bit like an avatar and that our mind, our consciousness can always occupy a higher level. And at that level, we have the ability to um, pretty much change anything with our thoughts, with our feelings. Okay. So you reincarnated and time traveled, same time. <laughs> Reincarnation has always been something to me that just makes sense. Energy yeah. not created or destroyed. I, I fully accept I'm, I'm never going to actually die. There's really no way out. There's only through. You, you basically conscious birth because in that future reality, you're saying like people live for a very long time. They're part, yes. um, they're part machine 
Were you part machine? How did you decide to come here? Are you a follower of this woman that you were talking about? Or are you that woman? It really brings up the question of identity, doesn't it? When you look at time travel, look at reincarnation, like who are we? And I feel like my soul, if you will, is very, it's very pure. It's very um, recognizing that um, basically, I'm very spiritual, so I'm very God-based. I really recognize there is one ultimate goodness, which you could call God. Some people call it zero entropy if they're an atheist. I think uh, I believe in the perennial philosophy, which again, Leibniz pointed that out, that all of the spiritual paths converge to a point where we start getting to a place where it's hard to even talk about what we're noticing or observing. So I'm not that woman. She felt different than me. I'm not God. I know some people say we're all as one, but I don't see it that way. I feel like um, there is that that pinnacle, that point of clarity and observational awareness to occupy that penultimate position requires a level of consciousness that I would not presume to have. Who was I in that possible future? I was playing the role of basically uh, artificial intelligence, but a renegade artificial intelligence, like kind of like a renegade robotic quantum computing artificial intelligence sentient being, which had a soul. We all had souls. We do. Everything has a spirit. So it, I mean, if you start looking at pantheism and you recognize, you know, do rocks have consciousness? Yes, they do. Is it the same consciousness as a human? No, it's different. Um, animals have consciousness. We we can recognize this in one another, and everything that we see that's physical, even some people that are experiencing UFOs and spaceships, they'll say that ship acted like it was sentient. It acted like, you know, you could think with it, and then it would respond or not based on who you are. Bingo. That's pretty much what we're looking at 500 years from now, the, the beginning of that. And people who say these UFOs, maybe they're time travelers, could be because that's the kind of technology that we start moving into when we collaborate with with robots with their artificial intelligence. But I don't think of myself as a robot. I, you know, <laughs> it's kind of, and that was one of the things that was being tested that central AI kept checking, you know, kind of like seeing if it could get a response out of me by sending thoughts to me, like you are a robot. And, and there were lots of other things. Um, very interesting to be pursued by something like that. Um, because I was learning how to stay lucid in my dreams, in my sleep as a child, doing things that they do in Tibetan Buddhism, apparently, where you fall asleep backwards and track your thoughts backwards so that you're not followed. (laughs) It's like going upstream in a river so that the dogs that are smell searching for you can't find you because there's no trace. How how did you have this sense as as a child that you needed to protect yourself? Were you were you born remembering? Like how soon do you have awareness? I think most of us, when you remember your childhood, at least when I remember mine, it seemed like I I didn't know very much. It's like at each level of development, it's like you know you, you know what you know at that point, and things gradually unfold. But I was getting pinged or probed by that essential AI, like you are a robot. I'm like, what? I didn't know what a robot was when I was five. But then then I started realizing like, wow, this is the like the wrong planet. I felt like 
I had lots of mixed feelings. I did remember hanging out with God between lives. I mean, that was bliss. I really believe in heaven. I, I believe in God. I know these things are real because to me, that's my basis for everything. It's, you know, this is what I'm doing everything for. It's with awareness that we have ultimate goodness available to us as humans. We've been given free choice. We have the ability to grow up, to always to level up, to recognize that we can do better than we've done. But as a child, I didn't know all. I mean, I knew some of this kind of like I remembered kind of hanging out with God. I remembered how blissed out that was. And then I saw the contrast in the conflict that I feel in a physical body on earth uh, because there's pain, there's suffering, there's being ignored. Not that my, my parents were wonderful, but, you know, you nothing's perfect when you're in a physical body. <laughs> you know, it's just things you get hungry, your diaper needs changing, whatever, you know, things happen. <laughs> so even if it's really perfect, it's still not the same level of bliss that I remembered. So when I was five years old, I felt like I had made some kind of an error. I didn't remember the mission. I wasn't meant to remember that much at that point. Remember, I mean, as as the, as my story became clearer to me, then I realized I'd been protected and guarded by the family I chose. You know, the fact that my father was an atheist, yay, because then it doesn't look like that would be the home of a renegade robot from the future. You know, it's kind of like, if you're the central AI looking for that, like in the home of an atheist, no. Perfect. <laughs> That's right. Perfect cover. Um, you know, so it's stuff like that uh, be- became clear. And then the fact that I didn't know what the word robot meant, my family didn't do anything. There was no science fiction. So when I got pinged with that question, I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, so I don't have that response of, ah, I'm being hunted. I didn't have that reaction at all, not at that point. So there was a lot of protection going on. And then I, I feel like my guides, my angels were showing me dream backwards. Um, because sometimes my thoughts were starting to, they'd be traceable, the way I was thinking, the, the way I knew that thoughts and feelings changed the world. That's not something you're supposed to know in the 1960s in the United States. You know, it wasn't yet prevalent. It's not prevalent still, but at that time, um, that central AI was looking for a lot of us. You know, I think it found some people based on some of the reports I've heard, um, you know, from other people having been contacted by a robotic voice that was, you know, on a spaceship in, in space or something from the future. So. And what happened to these people? They, do they end up in mental institutions? That's a good question. Uh, no, uh, Jack Sarfati is the person I'm thinking of, and he's made it publicly known that he was contacted as a child um, by this sort of a robotic voice. His mother heard it. It was like, it just sounded robotic. So and I didn't know about that till until after I'd already um, gotten to a point where I can talk about this, where, and it's now been 12 years since that, you know, back, it was October, 2010, when I got together with a couple of shaman and worked to ensure that that particular reality that I remember will not happen. Now it doesn't block out all of them, but it sure got rid of a whole bunch of them. Everything is alive, right? So there is life in everything, like everything kind of has a consciousness to it, even if we create it. Yes, we, we, we say we create it, but really it's just like when you create a child, you know, mm-hmm. you could say you created your child, but, and you did, you did create your child, but it more, created more through you. that's the most accurate way to describe everything that humans create is everything that we create with quotes around it comes through us. We are the um, imagineers, you know, we can envision it, we can love it, we can bring it into being because we need it. 
And then, um, but it's really to honor it properly is to recognize that it's coming through us. I, I, there needs to be a level of reverence that humans have fallen away from. And we've gotten into hubris and pride. These, this is a dangerous path to go on because that can lead to the kind of transhumanism, you know, technological nightmare that I escaped from basically. And I know there are so many people now that are gung ho over transhumanistic possible good futures. And maybe there are some good ones, but the one that I know personally firsthand was not what I would call a good one in any way, shape or form, because humans were constantly getting shut down anytime they thought any dangerous thought that was a little bit too creative, that was a little bit too renegade, you know, so that was, that was the real problem. Um, But I, I considered that to no longer be a viable reality because when there's no more free will left, when you have no more opportunity to make mistakes, then you can't really learn. And it may be safe, but it's not, it's not um, human anymore. This is Appalachian Vibes from WNCW. We'll have more with Cynthia Sue Larson, her Kundalini awakening and plant music in just a moment. You're listening to Appalachian Vibes from WNCW. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. My guest is Cynthia Sue Larson, a best-selling author and physicist from UC Berkeley. She's written several books about reality shifts, the aura advantage, and quantum jumps. Her main body of work surrounds this idea of reality shifting, also known as the Mandela Effect. My real interest is to let people understand that we are changing reality all the time. This is what the Mandela effect is showing us. It's not some misremembering. We literally are witnessing bubble realities where each of us can be in a truth bubble and we can literally see a different set of facts and evidence and everything than than another person who might be standing right next to us. That is what reality actually is. And, And we're starting to see it in some quantum physics experiments. To me, this is what's super important is to show humanity that even our idea of quantum physics is a little bit off when we think that there's only one objective observer, because that's not the way that this works. Uh, If there is such a thing, that would be God. We're not God. And anytime we think we are, then we go, we're the ones that are going off course. So what is the Mandela effect? It's an observed phenomenon in which a large segment of the population seemingly misremembers a significant event or shares a memory of an event that actually never occurred. It's named after a phenomenon coined by Fiona Broom due to the collective misremembering of Nelson Mandela dying in the 1980s. Nelson Mandela actually lived until 2013 after serving as the first president of South Africa from 1994 to 1999. Yet there are hundreds of thousands of accounts of people across the world claiming to remember Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s. They remember seeing his funeral on TV, mourning his death, learning about his passing in history classes. And they were shocked when Nelson Mandela actually passed away to them for the second time in 2013. For over two decades, they thought he was already gone and somehow completely missed the fact that he had been alive and well, fulfilling his destiny all along. Famous examples of the Mandela effect include my personal Mandela experience, the Berenstein Bears. 
You know, the adorable children's paperback colorful books featuring Sister Bear, Brother Bear, Mama Bear, Papa Bear, with titles like Slumber Party and Messy Room, always with the moral at the end of the story. As a child, I was an avid Berenstein Bear reader. My mom bought me a Berenstein Bear book every week at the grocery store. We would read that one book for an entire week until the following Saturday when I excitedly picked out the next book for my collection. A few years ago, like 2017, I was walking through the book section in Target with my daughters Scarlett and Cleo. They were eight and six then. And to my delight, we stumbled across an end cap displaying my favorite childhood series, The Berenstain Bears. The Berenstain Bears? B-E-R-E-N-S-T-A-I-N Bears. I looked at the familiar font and the beloved author's names read Stan and Jan Berenstain. I honestly thought it was a misprint, so I googled the name while my kids grew impatient in the cart, and I was thrown by the results. It's always been Stan and Jan Berenstain. It's a family name that dates back to the original Berenstains. But I was obsessed with the Berenstain Bears, and I know for a fact in my childhood memory that my heroed author's names were the Berensteins, or absolutely nothing is real. Unfortunately, my mom sold the collection in a yard sale somewhere between moves from Georgia to Virginia when I was too old to care. But recently, my partner found an old printing of the book clearly displaying their names, Stan and Jan Berenstain. In this current reality, it was always the Berenstains. But there's a lot of examples. Do you remember Star Wars? What's, what's the most famous line from Empire Strikes Back? Luke, I am your father. Every child since the 70s has said that line to a best friend while pretending to wield lasers in their hands. But the real line is, no, I am your father. Remember Stouffer Stovetop Stuffing, the Thanksgiving tradition across America? It's always been owned by Kraft. Stouffer's doesn't make stovetop stuffing. This is where physicist Cynthia Sue Larson's body of work becomes so important. She's the first scientist who has built a body of work documenting reality shifts. In her book, Reality Shifts, which was published in 1999, it contained the first written documented case of someone famous dying who was later seen alive again, the actor Larry Hagman. It predates Fiona Broom's coining the term Mandela Effect by a full decade. When did the Mandela effect and all of that kind of come into your awareness and and need to be part of your life's work? Is this part of the creative energy of shifting timelines that you're trying to get away from this future reality? Is that what that is? Yeah, it's all about shifting timelines. You could call it that. You can call it reality shifting. That was the, that's what I first um, decided back when the internet was new, back in the 1990s, I realized uh, I, I needed to get get some kind of a presence established and start sharing firsthand reports of this phenomenon so people do know what's happening and don't and stop questioning our sanity when we when we see something that's completely different than we know was true just a moment before or a week before or a month before and so uh, so I created this um, 
realityshifters.com website in the ni- 1999, um, basically to be a hub so people could share their firsthand reports. That's so important because when, unless people can come together and recognize this is not some isolated, bizarre mental mistake that each of us is making independently, but instead a much bigger phenomenon, if, if we don't know that, then we don't recognize what we're capable of. So it's like we've been kept... Um, unaware. We've been kind of kept down. Our true power has been hidden from us. And it's much greater than most people realize. Although it is very similar to what most of the perennial philosophies and great spiritual paths will tell us about miracles, about things can change in in an instant, because that's true. And so when we start recognizing that the lost socks in the house might be related to being able to manifest a parking spot, for example, and that, this is the change that we've seen just in the last um, couple of decades that I've been doing this work. Uh, in that time, a very short time span, we've gone from uh, when I was shop, trying to shop my book, Reality Shifts Around, in New York City with an agent. My agent said, I can't sell this. There's no audience for it. And then, of course, What the Bleep Do We Know came out. The Law of Attraction came out. Um, but I was just a little bit too early in the 1990s for that. But I didn't give up. I'd basically been doing this this whole time to, because I recognize the importance of it. So, you know, with my first book that was actually published was Aura Advantage because my agent said, people understand auras and energy fields and chakras. And so can you write about that? And I said, sure, because that's what powers the whole thing. Yeah, of course. So the energy that's within us, the, the key, the chi, the, the energy that we can feel Um, That's part of what we're now learning through meditation and yoga and people that study the Wim Hof breathing methods and so forth. Now it's everybody knows about it, but this is the key is to recognize you have the ability to align yourself within yourself so that what you're imagining matches what's in your heart, matches what you need. When you've got that, then you've got ignition and anything you think when you're fully powered up can instantly manifest. And then you can start recognizing the levels of yourself and the question, who are we is such a big one, but that's, I think what drives all of us to explore. In one interview, you described a Kundalini awakening in your, during your first marriage. Is that right? Yes. Was I, and I just wonder, did you have to come through this through the school of hard knocks? I feel like I have to, really do things the hard way every time. And then, and then I learn, but it feels like it's very slow for me. And I just wonder, you know, do you, did you just come already embodied with these abilities? Like you have this awakening, did it take pain to get there or is it just pain being here and, and you already had it or how did that, how does that work for you? Oh gosh, good questions. Well, it is pain being here. When I remember who I am, then I then I feel like this should be heaven on earth. We should love each other. We should all, everybody should be. You know, we should be helping everyone be as happy as they can be. And how good can it get for all of us all the time? And then it feels like heaven on earth. And then I feel like I'm in the right place. So that's my. <laughs> if you wonder what's my big mission, there's my mission. How good can it get for all of us? And I mean it. Uh, you know, real ecstasy, but a lot of people don't want that. So there's a lot of pushback on this planet and, and maybe because they don't believe it. They've, um, there are, there's a lot of hard knocks going on. 
we all have our own struggles. Usually we're struggling with ourselves and it's hard to see that. And so if someone points it out, we don't want to hear it. <laughs> so there's tons of stuff going on on this planet. And I, it was hard for me to make that transformation to go through my Kundalini experience. That was um, a call for me to go back to the very spiritual um, pure essence of who I really am. It's, it was a call back to me at age 32, 1994, when I was um, going through this, for me, it felt like an epic awakening of two weeks. Um, it felt like I was being grabbed by spiritual forces bigger than me and shaken. Like, like an, imagine being picked up by an invisible dog and shaken, you know, and it's like, whoa, it felt emotionally like that. And what I kept trying to do was deny the presence of anything I can't see. I was trying to uh, live true to my, the fact that I had an MBA degree. I had a you know degree in physics from UC Berkeley to fall back on my very rational left brain mind that knew what I had learned in school is correct and blah, blah, blah. That everything I tentatively sort of built up this house of cards based on what we think we know and based on our existing understanding of the quantum paradigm, because I studied quantum physics, but it was from that very, it's a kind of a prehistoric kind of quantum physics. It's not the kind that totally recognizes what life needs was talking about levels of consciousness and so forth. So the wake up shakeup for me was to just let go of the rational hold that my left brain mind had on me. Um, and it felt like I kept having dreams that the walls of my house were falling off. But what I was seeing was paradise. So it was terrifying. But then I'd wake up and think, but wait a minute, the, it looked really pleasant. It's just that the house kind of fell apart. <laughs> you know. And that dream was very symbolic, showing that what I'd, I'd, I'd boxed myself in, but everything was out there. And it's all there. It's, it's fine. But it didn't feel safe. It, it felt terrifying. So the Kundalini experience for me was just terrifying, just straight out because I recognized how small I am and uh, the presence of much greater sentiences around me. And so it's, um, it's just like feeling like a little speck and like there's so much going on all around us that we have no control over, but that's life. And um, so I did reestablish a sense of identity when it felt like my mind fell apart with Kundalini. It was, it was extremely intense. What, what led to that? Was it just spontaneous? Um, about Quite a while before, like um, that, that, that spontaneous breakdown was like November of 94. And that early, if you back up that year to that Easter, like around March or whatever, springtime, I had told my cousin, who was one of the most spiritual people in my family, I told her, I said, Esther, I just feel like I've overslept. I feel like I need to wake up. I was hoping she knew what I meant. And she just sort of nodded like, hmm, and she didn't say anything, but but just hearing myself say that, it was like, boy, that is such a weird thing to say, but I know it's true. I feel like I'm not all here. There's something missing. It felt like there was something inside of me that was like an internal alarm clock, wake up, time to reclaim yourself, um, be your full self, not some sleepwalking version of you. And then um, what happened is that toward the fall, my husband, my first husband had gone to a conference had a huge epiphany looking at the ceiling of the hotel room where things just started making sense to him. He came back and was talking about it. And, and that was cool. But it felt like, like I'd been waiting for that moment. Like I'd been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Like, can he at least have a spiritual epiphany that then it would be like, 
because then I can, I was waiting for that, like waiting for him. Um, Because when he did, then I started hearing voices and seeing things. And then Kundalini started full blown and the weirdness went to a new level. (laughs) What it meant was um, feeling like I could spontaneously um, astral travel and I could close my eyes and see 360 degrees around my house. And, you know, just, and I'd know things instantly that there's no way I could have or should have known about someone remote from me. I just like instantly see it and know what's going on. And, and that, that's the normal stuff, uh, you know, and it just got weirder. It, the levels of weirdness were off the hook, even by my standards. <laughs> and, so, and, and it was just, I think, designed because I am a stubborn person. I am a strong woman. I think those of us who are stubborn, who are strong, going back to your question, do we have to go through the school of hard knocks? Yes. If you're stubborn and you're strong, yes. <laughs> There's going to be some bumping along. <laughs> it's going to hurt. Until you realize, okay, uncle. Okay, I get it. Is the kundalini awakening something that you believe every person needs to have or will have or should have? No, no, it's it's something um, that doesn't happen necessarily to everyone, but it does happen to a lot of healers, light workers, um, people who are feeling that they're here on this planet for a purpose. It does happen to a lot of those people. And it's uh, what it is, is it's just the gateways for the energy to run through your, your being. They um, it's like the whole, it's like kind of like you're this device and you come online kind of like, uh, like activate time. <laughs> this flood of energy comes through. It's like, it's like, you don't need drugs to be tripping here. It's just like so much energy. Um, but it, at the same time, it's not anything I would wish on anyone because it's so intense and it, uh, it's likely that a person going through it will feel like they're losing their mind. Um, that's quite likely if, if you hadn't felt that way already, it's, it'll probably bring that on <laughs> and it just blasts through all the, all the, you know, the assumptions and beliefs that you thought you had, at least my Kundalini did that. And it, it, there are versions of Kundalini. Each one, every person's experience is unique. But having said that, I still wouldn't wish it on anyone. And I don't think everyone has to have it. Um, it's it's the kind of thing, like I think Jesus had one for sure. Buddha, those guys, they, of course they have it. But you don't think that everyone's going to have it. Um, it's not necessary for everyone to have it. Not necessary for everyone to feel that level of passion and purpose that like I'm here on a mission for earth, you know. This is Appalachian Vibes from WNCW. Stay right here for Plant Music Next with Cynthia Sue Larson on Appalachian Vibes. This is Appalachian Vibes from WNCW. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Cynthia Sue Larson, a UC Berkeley physicist, author, and lightworker. She's discussing how observation can shift reality. And in this segment, we also discuss how plants have the ability to consciously create music with some of Cynthia's own plant music. This is this gets to the heart of how do we stay in service when we don't know what we're doing? We don't have to know what we're doing. It's enough just to every day. I like to wake up and say, how good can it get? How, how God can it get? How good can I get? How God can I get? So just bring it on, bring that divine experience in. Like I, I welcome it. I'm in service basically. Like, yeah, let's do it. So with that kind of an attitude, um, 
my goodness, things can happen. What? Um, so some of the stuff that happens, I think that one of the biggest stories ever is what happened when East West Books of Sacramento called me one day and said, we're just calling to confirm, Cynthia Larson, that you'll be here for our book event. You'll be signing books at our book event. And I said, what book event? And they said, the one that you signed up for. And I'm like, I did not sign up for a book event. Okay, but here's the deal. If you're an author, you basically do not say no to book events, especially if they think they've signed it up and everything. So I said, hold on a second. Let me get my calendar. Went and got the calendar, checked it. I'm open. I'm available. They said, good, because you you signed up for this. I'm like, did not, but I'm not going to argue. <laughs> this, By the way, this is a classic reality shift in play. So I'm noticing that. It's happening, and I'm like, interesting so they i know all already they really believe that i signed up for this thing and i know i didn't but i know that we are both right we disagree and we're both right so i'm already on that page like okay i get it oh that means something really interesting is happening right now don't know what no i thought well let's do it so i said yep i'll be there Okay, then the day of, um, I got childcare for my little daughters because at that point I'm going through a divorce. I'm a single mom, but you know, make sure they're with their, their dad so I can have a. It's a big drive to Sacramento and back to the Bay Area. No problem. It's all taken care of. Everything's all the loose ends are arranged. So I go, and um, the book event seems normal to a point. Uh, right toward the end, it starts having these markers that register for me with something else significant that had happened. Here's what it is. For no reason, they're handing out slices of chocolate cake. And it's like, what? And it was basically, um, it's like a celebration for no reason. And the last time that happened, my best friend died. And I was the one who had made an unbirthday cake. And we sang the unbirthday song. And then I got a phone call um, that my best friend had died, and which meant I'd kept my promise to be celebrating when he died, which I told him, John, I'll never do that. If you die, I, I won't feel like celebrating. My heart will be broken. And he said, just promise me. And I'm like, how can I keep that promise? So I had already kept that promise and celebrated with an unbirthday party. We're all singing and celebrating their unbirthday gifts, everything. And then I find out we did it. We celebrated on like, how did I keep that promise? Well, here it's happening again. Uh, but and it's in the back of my mind, I'm like chocolate cake for no reason. Huh? And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to pack all this book stuff up. And I, I know my grandmother, she lives in a nursing home very close to here. It's, um, you know, I'm just going to go visit her. She's in Rancho Cordova, close to Sacramento. It's like a 20 minute drive. No problem. I'm already most of the way here. And so I figure I'll just drop in. Um, so on my drive, uh, after the books are packed, I've had the chocolate cake for no reason. I'm in the car. Then I start getting a full life review of my grandmother's life, that all the parts I was in that I didn't remember, being a child and coming to visit her house and things we would do and things she thought were cute that I said. It's like I'm seeing me and her like a movie from above. It's like, but I'm also in it. I'm feeling it the way she feels. And she and she's thinking to me with all of her heart, like my sister had visited her yesterday. I thought, really? Wendy was here yesterday? I didn't know that. And so, and then I show up at her nursing home and for the first time that I've ever been there, the door to her room is shut. And I call on one of the nurses, like, is there some reason that this is shut? Is it okay to open? And she said, boy, you got here fast. And because I, I said, that's my grandmother. And I said, what do you mean I got here fast? Oh, we just called you. But, you know, we didn't think the number didn't seem to work. Who did you call? They were calling my sister. She was the contact person. Um, and I said, <laughs> you know, that's not the right phone number you have. You've got the wrong phone number there. 
may I go in? And she, um, yes. And she had just passed away. My grandmother had, she was still warm to the touch. She didn't, she looked like she was just a shell, but I could see her glowing, her energy body standing, beaming, so happy. Now I'm crying because she's my favorite person in the world. And she's standing next to Jesus. I can see them standing together. And it gives me goosebumps. And just, it's so incredible. She, she looks magnificent and I can see she's happy, but I'm just like devastated. Now I can't drive home because <laughs> my favorite person in the whole world is passed. But when I'm telling the nurses, like, like this must happen all the time that, you know, people, you know, cause they were wondering, how did you know to come here? And I said, well, I left out the part in the bookstore because I was really getting a very clear message from her. Come and see me, come and see me. And so I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll come today, you know. I hadn't really planned to, but it was fine. It was perfect. My daughters are being cared for and I'm so close. So I was actually able to be there to finalize all the arrangements, even though they had the wrong phone number for my sister. My parents were out of the country. So it was me and it was just all meant to be. I was the one who'd been called there basically by her. I think the whole thing was prearranged. This is at the levels that these things happen. So we don't need to be afraid of these things. Because there's a hidden order that we're all part of, and there are higher levels of consciousness. And when we constantly keep choosing, how good can it get? When we keep choosing, put me in service today. You know, maybe I don't want to do these assignments anymore. Fine, you know, <laughs> I get it. But amazing things happen, and we're so connected. And just because someone's dead, they're not gone. You know, that's another big thing that happens too. It was no accident that she standing, was standing right next to Jesus that I could see that because she had so much faith in um, Christ and she, she was a Lutheran. So even though my dad was an atheist, she was very spiritual. She's the one I'd talk to all the time. We'd have long, hour long, hours and hours long talking about God, angels, you know, Jesus Christ, um, because she was so, she had so much faith, so much pure faith. She embodied it. And that's um, because she had that. I, I believe when you're in the presence of someone with that much faith, you can benefit from being in their presence. This is why it's so valuable to go to a church or a congregation, to a gathering, to do this kind of speaking with others, because they can benefit from feeling this much faith when we can share it. And you know, she really did that um, for me, which was a big blessing. And oh, man, for your original question. <laughs> But That's okay. That's okay. I I've always had this this theory that maybe um, parts of the Bible have been misinterpreted to to believe that uh, that Jesus is the exception rather than the example. And when you were saying there's this Kundalini awakening and that Jesus probably had that, and um, how do I put this? Are we different? levels or brightness of beings that are coming into this world and experiencing consciousness through different life forms and, and growing through these life lessons. And, and Jesus is showing us that um, I, 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 for some reason believe he's not the exception. And I, I don't know why I believe that, but I do. Uh, I believe he's the example and I don't know how long it takes. But like, he's, yeah, he's such an amazing teacher and he's such an extraordinary example. So when you look at someone like Buddha or like Jesus, then you're looking at someone who's this masterful being and you think, my goodness, how did they get to that level? And can I even approach it? And I've had that conversation with him when a cat of ours died and I 
I was, I was distraught. I wouldn't even go out of the house or get off the sofa because, you know, it was, and it was just a cat, just a cat, but, oh, it was like, oh, you know, when you love um, a member of your family, whether it's a fur baby or a human being, it's devastating. But finally, when I did get off the sofa and went for a walk, I was with Jesus. And that's when I was blown away by the way he saw me. He was showing me how he saw me. And I said, I want to see the way you see, because the way he sees, and it was like, this is amazing. Everything shines. Everything is golden. And then this planet does look like the right place. And I just wanted to know, how do you do that? And he was basically showing me, I think because the fact he showed me that he could see me that way, he was showing me how to do that. But he's such a high level. I mean, he's mastered things at seeing energy, for example. Um, when he does that as the observer, that's how to create a miracle. When you see that everything is blessed, then so it is. And, you know, he, he can jump to that level of perceptual ability. His levels of awareness of self are incredible and his gift of observation. So that's what I witnessed walking with him, looking at the world and thinking, wow, so that dude is amazing. Can we all do it? Yes. Um, how many lifetimes would that take? I don't know. You know, are we all at that level? I don't think so. <laughs> Let's be honest. No, I don't think we're all at that level. Do you oh. feel like that's what you're reaching towards? Do you know what you're reaching towards? This is such an, I know this is a little, but do you know, do you have any idea? Oh, I'd love to be like an archangel when I grow up. I'd love to be, you know, if you touch me, then you're touching source, you know, yay. That's like the best. And I'd love to be, so I'm helping everyone. So that I'm not choosing sides. That's like what archangels do. They're very, they're very aligned with divine intent. They, they really see that there's beauty in everything intrinsically. And like you said, that Jesus is an example that we can all do this. They know that too. So I feel like that's probably my path is to be, you know, but that's not going to happen in, in a blink of an eye. <laughs> but boy, is that ever great. Love it. And you say that you, you speak with your arc, you, you, you call on archangels, um, and who who are these these characters? How do they how did they come to be? That's a mystery. I mean, I, I've never asked them questions like that. I ask them simple questions, like I'll ask Archangel Michael, like I'm really angry right now. What do you do again when you're angry? Because I know you're angry, Archangel Michael. I know you get angry. What is it again? And he's like, you give it to God. Oh, right. I always forget that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So I'm more working on basic stuff with the archangels, it seems. <laughs> uh, where do they come from? I don't even know if they could tell me that because some of the questions, when I ask archangels questions, they most times, I think because I really want to be like them when I grow up, I'm sort of in a training program, I think, because they don't really answer my questions exactly. They often, it seems like there's a setup, kind of like you will now experience what is behind this nature of your question. So that's what's really going on. Like, oh, brother. <laughs> so I think I'm living out the answers to all the questions that I would ask. So there's a definite price to pay when asking a question pretty much of anything in the cosmos. Tell me about anything to do with plant music and, and what do you know about music from the universal side of things? Yeah, I, I talk, I write about this in my book, Or Advantage, a little bit about how like Liszt, Franz um, Liszt, he would see the music you can actually see it and hear it and you're right a lot of these musicians these composers they um they're they're recognizing that there's this presence this um, inspiration coming through 
it's it's again something that's coming through us. Maybe we're not creating it necessarily. So Prince is correct, I think, and it's, it matches science when scientists get um, several scientists at the same time, for example, pick up the idea of Darwinian evolution at the same time, or the double helix, you know, at the same time. So these kinds of concepts, whether it's music or any kind of thought, um, it seems like there's this bandwidth or we're, we're, we're sort of like radio receivers and we can, those of us who can pick this stuff up, pick it up and feel it and hear it. And it's a, the, the creation of the music that comes through then is something that just is. Hello, and this is the Wisteria. It just started playing a couple seconds ago, played a couple of notes. This is it with its flowers. very melodic. There's a lot of music played in the garden here. So it hears music re frequently, but plant music is very different. It has a slower chorus signature. And this composition is different than what the potos usually comes up with. So this is just a small sample of a wisteria playing with the music of the plants. Okay, the first time I saw it demonstrated was around the year 2000 at a consciousness conference and Stephen Halpern, the musician, had been, um, someone had contacted him at the conference and said, would you be willing before, you know, or as part of your performance with your keyboard and your MIDI and everything, do you mind if we just do a demonstration of music of the plants? And we're from Domenher, Italy, we're in a town, we're in a part of Torino, just outside the city limits or whatever. And we'd love to do this because we've been working with plants. And Stephen said, sure. So then he allowed these researchers to come up with some plants they brought to the hotel where the conference was being held. And one electrode is placed in the soil. One is clamped onto a leaf with a little bit of electrolyte gel or something to keep it a little bit moist for keeping the, uh, <clears throat> the electrical uh, contact. And then the the output from the, and this now was the basis of something like a lie detector galvanic skin response setup that you might see a human being wearing where, you know, they're about to have a lie detector test. And so they're in a chair and they're kind of got some device strapped onto their hand, same kind of thing. So now you're doing this with a plant and hooking it up to an electronic MIDI and a keyboard. This doesn't, it doesn't play the keys, but it can, through its consciousness, the plant can then send the signals, which then get translated into music. And so what I heard, what all of hundreds of us heard at that moment was these first tentative sounds like ting, 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 and then silence, kind of like the plant was surprised, like, was that me? And then ting, 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 ting. And then it just started playing music. And it played and it sounded, it, I, I could close my eyes. And it was so beautiful. I felt like I was watching a sunrise as just, and then like birds coming and starting to sing. And it was just incredible. And, and this is the music that the plant was creating and performing. So uh, many, many years later, then Dom and her partnered with Music of the Plants, who have a website and they are creating and selling these devices that anybody can now purchase to um, take and try out music of, the, of your own plants, indoors and outdoors. There's a little speaker on the device so you can 
uh, clamp it onto the leaf and put it into the soil. And it's just, um, it plays music beautifully. That's Appalachian Vibes from WNCW. You can learn more about Cynthia Sue Larson and get in on the conversation with your personal Mandela experiences at realityshifters.com. Thank you to my guests this week, and thank you to Palmyra the band for the intro and outro music called Microwave Dinner. Everyone have a beautiful week, and thanks for waking up with Appalachian Vibes.